I'm a fine me. I just keep getting better every year. You're listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the TV that we're obsessed with. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. And right now we're watching American Gods. My guest this week is Jackson Crawford. He teaches Old Norse at UC Berkeley and the University of Colorado at Boulder. He does a lot of translation to and from Old Norse, which is the language that the Vikings would have spoken and written in. He's also one of the world's experts on poetry written about Odin, who is, of course, one of the main characters in American Gods, Mr. Wednesday. So I'm incredibly excited to have Jackson here to talk to us about Odin and even to read us some poetry in Old Norse about this great ancient god. So let's get started. It's exciting that you're joining us for possibly the weirdest episode that we've had yet this season. So first of all, I wanted to ask if you had any interpretation of that opening scene, which was mysteriously in CGI, where we see these Ice Age people is there some kind of demand for sacrifice that's being made in that scene? Because I I wasn't certain what we were supposed to think had happened. I understood that the god had died at the end. That was clear. But what, did you have any kind of sense of what was going on in that scene? I was a little unsure. Um, for one thing, I was really surprised to see CG all of a sudden. I've been watching this on the, well, just online on Amazon. And they have a little interview with a couple of creators at the end of each episode. And they had mentioned that they wanted kind of a CG feel for this prehistoric scene. They felt like they couldn't accomplish, I guess, in live action. And it does have an interesting stop motion aesthetic, but there's no speech or very little speech. And so it was pretty hard to tell what exactly was supposed to be happening. I mean, it, there is that scene in the book that I think this is sort of based on where there's the shaman who worships this mammoth god called Minyu Mini or something like that. And I was trying to remember exactly how that went. I remember that they drank some kind of hallucinogen. And then I'm trying to remember if she did actually sacrifice herself in the book. It is definitely a reference to that scene in the book. I think they're supposed to be the people who came to the Americas over the Bering Strait after the ice has receded. The reason why I thought it was ambiguous was I wasn't sure if she was having to sacrifice herself and that was kind of the origin of gods wanting sacrifices, or if there was something, I don't know, more complicated going on. Because I do feel like sacrifice is a huge theme for these gods. Pretty much, it's pretty much what runs through all of their identities, in a sense. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think that media, as portrayed by Gillian Anderson, put it well when she was appearing to shadow out of the TV screens, saying that, well, time and attention is a kind of sacrifice, too. You know, all the gods want something, including the new gods. But that particular scene in CG, I couldn't follow exactly what we were supposed to be reading out of it. Because there was also a later killing after the shaman seems to get gored by that buffalo. There's a scene where it looks like maybe two tribes are in conflict. And this older man gets killed. And then some children are eating meat. And it was all just so visual without words that I couldn't quite tell what we were supposed to be reading out of it. I thought they were eating a heart. And it was interesting because this I felt like that the scene was supposed to be kind of an origin story for gods. And yet it ends with this scene where the characters are, I thought, eating hearts or eating pieces of a, of, of a sacrifice. And the voiceover says, 
it's not about the gods, it's about the people and it's about the hearts of people because when we die, that's ultimately where we go. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a really weird, ambiguous origin for gods because simultaneously gods are kind of being invented and the method of worship is being invented at the same time that we're sort of saying, actually, this is just all about humans. Right. Here's the invention of the gods, which is the central point of the show, but gods don't really matter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and yet they matter completely. So we also, in this episode, we met Mr. World. And I was really curious. I mean, even when I was reading the book, and, and of course we won't give away, you know, certain spoilers, but I wasn't really sure where Mr. World fit into any kind of pantheon of gods did you what what do you think mr world is supposed to represent well i haven't thought about that exactly i mean media is fairly clear technical boy is fairly clear mr world almost seems to be the notion of well i guess the ecumenical or cosmopolitan society the global network of information technology when he says that he knows all this stuff about shadow you know these private things that no one else could really know you prefer swiss to shatter and can't abide the tines of two forks touching. And this is the face you make when you masturbate. It's almost like he's kind of embodying just anything that could be learned from one's private technology, from one's computer if the, if the camera's on all the time, or phone if the camera's on all the time. Although how he knows how many sexual partners his mom had is kind of unclear. I, I guess the closest thing is maybe just that sense of, of the world becoming one. And, and he kind of says that when he's talking to Wednesday, that you know, that everybody's going to be buying the same product at the same store. Single company for a single global market. Spicy, medium, or chunky. They get a choice, of course, of course! But they are buying salsa. So I, I guess, if anything, yeah, that sense of the cosmopolitan society is what I get from him. The globalized society is the word I'm looking for. A new kind of omnipotence or omniscience, really, kind of a, yeah, an an information omniscience. So this gets us right into the the juicy stuff that I want to talk to you about, which is we see this really interesting exchange between Mr. World and Odin, where Mr. World and media and to a certain extent technical boy are talking about changing Odin's brand and making Odin something that's more palatable for the modern world. And Odin, and so they show him these great, it's this great scene where they're like, you could be like a missile and you could destroy North Korea and it'd be so awesome. And Odin says in response, you guys want a pearl, but I'm the grit in the oyster. Like I can't, I can't be what you are asking. And so you're, you are an expert in Odin much more than anyone else I've ever talked to. So does this fit into your sense of, of who Odin is from Old Norse poetry and myth? You know, as we were talking about Mr. World, it occurred to me that Odin is, in a sense, the Mr. World of the Norse pantheon. He is the one who gathers information from all over the earth. In uh, the poem Grinismol, in the poetic Edda, Odin says, Hugen och munin fyga hörjanda, jormen grund yder, ånk ek och hugen, att han after kommit. My ravens, Hugen and Munin, thought in memory, fly every day over the whole world. I fear that thought will not return, but I fear more for memory. And those two ravens, Hugen and Munin, thought in memory, after flying all over the world, come back to him and tell him their report of everything that's going on. So in a sense, he is also 
the embodiment of that kind of globalized sense of the connected world, of knowing what's going on all over. And of course, in this episode, we see Hugen and Munin interacting with him. But Odin also isn't about a connected global world in the sense that Mr. World is, because Odin thrives on battle, and on battle as a form of sacrifice. You know, he needs divisions among people, which Mr. World, I suppose, would be opposed to. So I do think he's a grit in the oyster of human society. Inside every pearl, there's a single irritating grain of sand. That's me. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Odin is constantly trying to get people to fight, to get people to die in battle. And so whatever pearls might be produced from that, in a Norse context, something like Skaldic poetry or the great sagas, Odin is still fundamentally about that grit, about that conflict that he's generating. So I do think that that's an accurate portrayal of him. If Odin is representing this kind of connectedness and knowledge, which makes a lot of sense, and, and you, like you said, we do see him talking to his raven, or one of them, how can he also be a champion of conflict? How does conflict and knowledge of the world fit together in myths about him? Well, he's a really complicated character. When I first read American Gods some years ago, probably 11, 12 years ago, I thought that Gaiman had done the best job I've ever seen in popular culture of depicting the character because so often he's just depicted as a kind of grandfatherly, beneficent character like he is in the Marvel movies. But Odin knows that he will die at Ragnarok, that he will be killed by the wolf Fenrir because he's woken up a dead witch in the Norse poem Bolesvall who has told him exactly how he's going to die. And he's obsessed with trying to forestall or prevent that. And so he seems obsessed, too, with learning as much as he can, with getting all the wisdom and knowledge that he can from anywhere. And he sacrifices himself in this quest. So not only does he have Hugin and Munin flying all around the world getting information, but he also sacrifices his eye in the well of Mimir for a drink of the waters that are supposed to grant wisdom. And he goes through a really elaborate adventure trying to get the need of poetry because the ability to form, create poetry is a form of knowledge too. He goes and he challenges giants and other characters who are said to be wise or all-knowing and has contests with them to learn whatever he can from them about the beginning and end of the world. And of course, he sacrifices himself to himself on the tree of Yggdrasil uh, in order to gain the knowledge of the runes. So this quest for knowledge seems to have something to do with his sense that if he just learns the right secret, maybe he can forestall or prevent his death. But in preparation for Ragnarok, he's also gathering as many warriors as he can into Valhalla, Old Norse Valhul, since men who die in battle are the only ones who can go to Valhul. He goes around the world and stirs up battle and war in various ways in order to get men to fight and kill each other. And then he sends his Valkyries, Old Norse Valkyrior, to take the best half of the slain warriors and bring them to Valhul, where they train by fighting each other every day and killing each other. And at Ragnarok, he will be accompanied by this army of about half a million in his final battle against the wolf, although they are destined to fail. So he's a sort of nervous, anxious character in Norse myth. He's never too sure when Ragnarok is going to come. He's never sure that he's learned enough. 
He's learned the right secret. He's gathered enough warriors. And so he is both a creator of conflict and a bringer of wisdom and knowledge. And in different poems, we see him performing, or different poems and different sagas, we see him performing both roles. So basically, he, in a sense, he's trying to gather warriors together to prevent his own death. So basically, the conflict that he's fostering is all in the service of, he's a, he's a bringer of knowledge, but he's also a complete, is he a narcissist? Is he just, or is he just struggling to survive like any person would? I think it's survival more than anything else. He's not an evil character, but he is sometimes very selfish. And as the ruler of the pantheon of gods, of course, his self-preservation is also the preservation of the pantheon and of the human beings beneath them. He can bring benefits to people, too. For instance, there's the story of the Danish king, Harold Wartooth. You have to admire these people for having names so much more advanced than our own. <laughs> and Harold Wartooth, Odin had promised, would be impervious to steel. And so Harold Wartooth goes out and leads his campaigns and is victorious in many battles and, of course, can never be harmed by any iron or steel weapons. But then one day, as he's getting just a little old, he's about to ride out to battle, and he jumps on his chariot, and his charioteers, an old man he's never seen before, one eye, dressed all in gray and white-brimmed hat, carrying a club, and the charioteer turns around and beats him to death with a club. And of course, it's Odin, who always appears in the same disguise, the one-eyed man, and Odin has come back to harvest him. So even his gifts you know, are ultimately going to be for his own in his own service, because, of course, he wants this warrior with him in Valhalla before the guy gets too old to be an effective warrior. So do you think that the figure of Shadow is a reference to any of these kinds of stories that we see about Odin and myth? Does he kind of fit into that figure who Odin is helping a little bit, but then will harvest? Or does he occupy some other position? When I first read American Gods, I kept waiting for the harvest, because uh, Shadow does seem to fall into that a little bit. Not only is Odin sometimes associated with shadows. He has so many names, and some of them like Grimnir, which Mad Swoony even calls Odin in episode five. Said he wanted to see what your man was made of. Who said? Ah! Use your words. Grimnir! The duty goes Wednesday. Directly reference his wearing of a hood that shadows his face. And Odin also has, of course, sons, something like Zeus. He also, you know, he gets around and sleeps with women of godly, giant, and human ancestry. And so he does have these various sons that he often favors in one way or another. I mean, one of the things that was really intriguing about last night's episode was the fact that we saw a lot more of the motivations of the new gods, um, much more than we really saw in the, in the book, and particularly their attempt to sell Odin on the idea of becoming one of them. And that also made me wonder if that conflict between the old and the new gods, does that feel to you like something that you could see in an old Norse epic? It's hard to say what that conflict is that they're even having. I guess it's really just a conflict between Odin's kind of individualistic way of doing things, and they want to kind of team up and bring everyone together, or? I don't know. I thought about this a little bit, too. I mean, I, I suppose it's sort of framed as a as a conflict over resources, and the resources are people's time and attention and worship, literally or figuratively. And the show does 
show us so much more about some of these other characters. You know, the book largely follows uh, Wednesday and Shadow, but like we saw in episode four, we suddenly have so much more of Lara's perspective than we ever have in the book, although we have a little bit of hers in the book. And now in episode five, we have so much more of the new God's perspective, and they're even allowed to make a fairly sympathetic sales pitch to Wednesday. I mean, you might not like their message, but they don't do a particularly bad job of selling it, at least world and media, technical voice, kind of a brat. <laughs> but, you know, and, and she even says, well, this is like Valhalla on you, you know, well, well, you can be, you can be a guided missile, kill tens of millions of people. But I think to Odin, that kind of mass wholesale slaughter without people with weapons in hand killing each other directly is probably not as appealing. It does seem that you have to be armed, weapon in hand, when you die to reach Valhalla. So I don't think just dropping a nuclear bomb on people would count. But also, of course, Odin is in charge of his pantheon, or who wants to be demoted to just another cog in the sort of more corporate machine of the new gods. But also, I think that this conflict over resources between sides that aren't necessarily painted as black and white, but just in survival mode, is pretty reminiscent of the sagas, and also of the stories about the gods, where they're in conflict with the giants of Jotnar. The giants don't necessarily seem to be all that much more evil objectively than the gods are. They just exist in a world kind of like what the Norse people lived in that's got limited resources and people fighting over them. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the bombing, too, that this would not be interesting to Odin because, you know, it's kind of a cowardly way to fight, right? Like dropping a bomb on people is not, you're not really fighting. It's very, it's sort of like just pushing a button. Yeah, it's too impersonal. The best thing you can call somebody in Old Norse is drenger, which is uh, this great noun that I often have my students just translate as badass because it's basically what the connotation is. It's someone who's just recklessly courageous. There's a fight. I'm going to jump in and, and, and get in on that fight. Um, and, of course, part of that is the attitude that there's two afterlives. There's hell, which is boring, and there's Valhall, where you fight and die every day, but at least it's glorious. And the Old Norse text, we read this notion that – or this, this notion is, is prevalent. You can, you can read it out of so many of these stories that there is a particular day you're going to die. So – if I'm going to die on May 29th, 2017, if that's just my fated death day, then I'm going to die today no matter what I do. And I probably don't know what that day is, but it's the day I'm going to die. So if today I'm walking down the street and I see two people just going at it, I actually have sort of a motivation to jump in and join the fight. Because if I don't die in the fight, then I wasn't going to die today anyway. If I do die in the fight, then I could just go to ball ball. And I was going to die today anyway. And if I didn't join the fight, a piano would have fallen on me or something. So, you know, you always sort of choose the more martial path because whatever, like I said, if it's your death day, it's your death day, whether you die in battle or not. So you might as well die in battle. So go fight whenever there's an opportunity. It really is a code of hyper-masculine courage. Can you say the word again that means badass? Drenger. It's D-R-E-N-G-R. I have a feeling that a lot of us need to, you know, be taking that word in and using it. <laughs> is it really true that the Vikings sort of thought of hell as just being boring? Or do you get tortured and other stuff? Or is it just kind of like, nope, you just have to sit around? There's never any talk about torture. In fact, sometimes it even seems sort of pleasant. When the uh, god Baldur is killed, of course, he's not killed in battle, so he goes to hell. And he's greeted with this nice feast. And there's mead and there's straw on the benches so you can sit down comfortably. And there's a 
nice meal prepared. It doesn't seem to be anything more than just kind of a shadow of the living world. It is presided over by the goddess or goddess-like figure who's also named Hell. And she seems kind of fearsome. She's said to be half flesh-colored and half, quote, blue as hell, whatever that means. Most people interpret it as meaning half like a rotten corpse because corpses are called blue. But even though she's kind of fearsome looking and she's the daughter of Loki, she doesn't seem to be like evil in motivation exactly. She doesn't seem to hurt anybody. But the uh, concept of the afterlife probably deferred from place to place and era to era in the Viking Age. Valhall sometimes seems to be a kind of new idea because in some of the very oldest poems, it seems like everybody goes to hell. Sort of like in the Iliad where there's just the shadowy realm of death that everybody seems to go to and just become kind of wandering bored ghosts. Kind of like that in the Old Testament too. Like you sort of hear about there's this like outer darkness or like shale and it's like nobody's really happy there, but like there's no kind of, you know, technicolor, gory kind of, you know, demons are eating your nose kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about a theme that's kind of running through the entire series and the book as well. Both are set largely in the Midwest, I mean, the American West, but particularly the Midwest. And I know that in your work, you've kind of explored a crossover between kind of cowboy culture that's associated with the American West and Old Norse. And it seems like this this narrative is also kind of participating in whatever that crossover is, that there's a kind of some kind of connection between Norse myth and like American frontier myth. What is that? What's going on? What is the crossover there? It's not something that I had ever thought about before. There's a joke that I'm fond of. When Icelanders find out that I teach Icelandic at UC Berkeley, Sometimes they express a little bit of surprise. But I like to say, well, I'm from Wyoming, and that's America's Iceland. We have volcanoes. We have geysers. We have about 300,000 people. It is very hard to get out in the winter, but in the summer we're full of tourists. And we have a reverence for a frontier past. In Wyoming, of course, that's late 19th century, early 20th century, cowboys and Indians. But in Iceland, that's the... Viking Age when Iceland was being settled. And, you know, it's easy to forget that the Viking sagas are a literature of nostalgia. They're written down in the 1200s, and that Iceland has been Christian for 200, 250 years about their ancestors 300 years beforehand in this Iceland that's now lost to them, that was still a frontier, still being settled from Norway, a place where men were men, and, you know, it was bloody, but it was sort of honorably bloody. You know, you have your your duel at a set time and opponents respect one another and everyone is bold and extremely handsome and etc. And it's really not that different from the way that people who enjoy Westerns envision the past of the American West. People were more honorable. They resolved their disputes with their six guns instead of suing people. Although the Icelandic sagas are full of lawsuits too. It's It really is a similar kind of romantic idealization of a frontier past. And for me, one of the deepest connections between the two cultures came in the form of Odin, actually, because in the Poetic Edda, which is the manuscript that survives from medieval Iceland, written down in about 1270, but almost certainly based on oral poems that have been composed before the year 1000, there is a poem called 
Hovamol, which means the words of the High One, which is Odin. And this contains Odin's advice for good living, as well as his account of his sacrifice of himself to himself. And a lot of his advice is very practical, down-to-earth, everyday things. Don't drink too much, but don't not drink. Don't talk too much, but don't not talk. You know, it's all very much about moderation, about being cynical and suspicious of people and not letting them get the better of you. And a lot of this advice, uh, when I first encountered it as a fairly young person, reminded me of the advice that my grandfather gave me. And so when I published my translation of the Poetic Edda two years ago, I included an appendix with the Cowboy Hovamol, which is my translation of Odin's advice into my grandfather's voice. I think it really works. In fact, I'd say as a matter of tone, it's a closer translation than my straight-up, quote, normal English translation of Hovamol earlier in the same book. It's just the practical advice of people who live close to the earth. Because you kind of emphasize the, the environment, and, and so it's not just you know, any earth, it's like a very harsh environment that's very hard to live in. Mm -hmm. Harsh, mountainous, arid. I guess Iceland isn't as arid, but there are some similarities in the pattern of settlement and, of course, in the very limited resources that people inevitably find themselves fighting over. And this notion that conflict over those resources is just inevitable. So just don't shy away from that conflict. Be honorable about the way you conduct yourself in it and don't let anybody play you for a fool. And is there an element to, if we kind of jump over to kind of Old Norse and Viking culture, is there an element of that culture that is about kind of colonization? Because I feel like cowboys and Vikings were, you know, kind of the first line of colonization and did kind of come in and smash a bunch of indigenous groups. <laughs> the people who became the British were, were quite sad in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle about Vikings. Every year they would just kind of write down and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was just kind of like an annual, it was like a calendar where whoever could write would say, this is what happened to us this year. And it was usually like, the Vikings came and kicked our asses. And then they stole a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, it's fun. I'm familiar with the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of crossover between Old Norse and Old English people. One of the most striking things about that is, of course, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is being recorded in a language that was understandable to the Vikings themselves. Old English and Old Norse were still probably largely mutually intelligible at the time. So it's, it's sort of distant cousins, you know, the sort of barbarian cousins from across the sea. And so I think that's a pretty different part of the narrative between Vikings in, say, England and the frontier of the American West 130 years ago, is there was some more feeling of kinship between the two groups, perhaps. I think that, you know, in, in the American West, there's a lot more perception between Native Americans on one hand and colonists on the other, just totally alien people. But the English and the Norse had, you know, again, nearly mutually intelligible languages. And of the thousand or so words that you and I use the most every day, about a hundred of those are, are Norse. You know, we say they, their, them, which are, which are Norse words, not the original English words. We say get, take, kill, die, sister, leg, bone. I mean, these words are Norse. So there was also, you know, the, the Norse were incorporated into the English, whereas the American Indians were pushed further and further into their own enclaves. And so it's, it, there's not as much incorporation in the West as there is in Europe with the Vikings. 
Oh, so I wanted to get back to something that you've mentioned a couple times in this conversation, which was that Odin sacrifices himself to himself. What does that mean? Well, it's a little bit of a mystery, but in the poem Odmol, in the poetica, Odin says, and so can I read this in Old Norse? Yes, please do. All right. Veit ek at ek hek vinga medi o natur alar niu, geri undadur of given odni, sjolvur sjolvum mer, o thein medi er man gibet, vers han av rotum ren. Vit levi nexeldu, nevit hornigi, niste ek nither, nam ek uprunar, virpandinan, felek after thadar. I know that I hung on a windswept tree nine long nights, wounded with a spear and given to Odin, myself to myself, on that tree whose roots grow in a place no one has ever seen. No one gave me food, no one gave me water. I peered down, I took the runes, screaming, I took them, and then I fell. So that stands as 138 to 139 of Hovmal in Old Norse with reconstructed pronunciation, and then in my, quote, normal translation. And this is really the only place that we hear this story, but it appears that Odin sacrificed himself on Yggdrasil, the world tree, and that somehow by hanging there, wounded with a spear for nine nights, he was able to learn the runes, the alphabet that was used to write Norse before the Roman alphabet was introduced. And this sacrifice mirrors a story that we read about a human king being sacrificed to Odin. In Gautrek's saga, there's a group of Vikings who uh, land on an island, spend the night there, and then wake up and find they don't have a wind. And so they cast lots in an undescribed way to figure out what the will of the gods is. And every time they cast lots, it comes up saying that the will of the gods is that the king should be sacrificed. And so they don't want to do this, so they decide they're going to sleep on it. And at night, an old man, dressed all in gray with one eye and a wide-brimmed hat probably, wakes up one of these men and rows him over to another island where he and a man with red hair and a red beard, who is, of course, Thor, starts giving him blessings and curses. And the blessings and curses are interesting because they reflect the difference between Odin, who is looked at with so much ambivalence in the Norse world, and Thor, who's looked at much more positively, and who's also more associated with the middle class, while Odin is more of an upper-class god. Uh, for instance, Odin says, you'll be loved by all the princes and kings, but Thor says, you'll be hated by all the common men, all these different curses and blessings. But at the end of it, Odin says to this man, all right, I've given you these blessings. Now I want you to sacrifice your king like I asked for. And he says, here is a reed, a swamp plant, and tomorrow morning I want you to hang the king and throw this reed at him, and the reed will turn into a spear. So the man goes back, and the next morning uh, they agree that they're going to hang the king in a symbolic way. They're not going to really hang him, so they just take a soft calf intestine, wrap it around his neck, and, quote, hang him from a very low branch. And then this guy throws his reed. And as he throws the reed at the king, he says, Nu gevek Odin, I give you now to Odin. And then the reed turns into a spear, pierces the king, and then the calf intestine turns into a rope. The tree turns into a huge tree instead of this tiny tree they hung him on, and he is actually killed. And so this is, of course, strikingly similar to the way Odin says he sacrifices himself in Hodemal by hanging and by wounding with a spear. And the uh, German cleric, Adam of Bremen, 
also talks about human sacrifices being made at Uppsala in Sweden uh, by men hanging. So presumably Odin has actually sacrificed himself in the manner that he would have expected a human sacrifice, which is pretty fascinating in and of itself. But this story is only told in those two stanzas in Baltimore. Wow. And so does he actually die or is it a symbolic death? It, he, it sounds like he survives because he brings runes to his people. Yeah, it's not clear. He doesn't, he doesn't say I died at any point, but it almost seems like it is at least a symbolic death. Also, this scene that you just described of sacrificing the king seems clearly to be what the opening uh, moments in this in this season of American Gods is based on, because it's these guys get to this place, as far as they know, it's an island, and then they wind up having to sacrifice a bunch of a bunch of guys in order to get the wind back so that they can leave. I was so hoping they would do this exact scene. You know, when they said, "Well, they knew how to talk to the gods." They to find out what they wanted, I thought, oh, yes, they're going to do this. But then they did something pretty different. I mean, they, they had the one guy they just burned to death. That's not based on anything in Norse that I can think of. They plucked out their eyes. There's nowhere that anybody plucks out their eyes as a sacrifice to Odin. So the, sac- the actual specific sacrifices they did don't strike me as authentic. But, uh, well, except maybe at the very end where they all kind of fight each other in a battle. That might be seen as sort of uh, sacrifice to Odin since it's battle. You're sending men to Valhol because they're dying that way. But the, the immolating as a guy and the guys looking at their eyes, it's not based on anything in Norse texts. As we were just discussing earlier, they've encountered something that is not part of Norse myth, which is instead of encountering these brothers that they're fighting, say, uh, in England or in some of the other places that they invaded, they're encountering this alien force that, you know, the the natives are shooting them with arrows in this like incredible way like wow super badass arrow shooting and so something that we never see in norse myth it's something that's purely american uh, that was an awesome scene but yeah well there are two sagas of course that do talk about viking explorations in north america there's eric Sagareva, the saga of eric the red and grunlending saga the saga of the greenlanders and in both of those sagas they do talk a little bit about conflicts with american indians and it's actually surprising. It's one of the few places in the sagas where Norse warriors are actually described as being kind of scared. There's this famous scene in the saga of Eric the Red where they're attacked by a group of American Indians who are using catapults and bows and just just hammering them. And so this, the Norse start running away, but there's a pregnant woman named Freudis who can't run very fast because she's just waddling along. She's pregnant. And as she's running, she comes to a fallen Norse warrior and she picks up his sword and she turns around and strips her chest bare and then slaps her sword on her breast. And this is what finally turns the tide and scares the American Indians who are attacking them away. And then she, you know, castigates the men for being so afraid when she stood her ground. But yeah, they do describe what they call skralingjagr as pretty fearsome. <laughs> you know, this was not something they were expecting. Uh, when they landed in Greenland, there wasn't anyone there. And so when they came to the Canadian mainland in Vinland, they, they were pretty surprised to find people and, uh, of course, had no way of communicating with them. So it was just a somewhat terrifying and new experience. But they must have had um, some respect for them because they were fighters. So they, oh, yeah. they could relate yeah. to them in that way. Yeah, they're not described in, in like, disrespect terms. 
but there's definitely, you, you can read some, some shock into the text. Wow, that's really interesting. So basically, that scene that we get at the beginning of the series is kind of attested in um, the actual Norse literature. So not the eye plucking or the burning, but at least the meeting with the natives who are pretty badass. I wish we'd gotten the breast beating scene. Jeez. <laughs> that's, that's pretty famous uh, among saga readers. But of course, that, that just testifies to the fact that they were looking to settle in what they called Finland because they did bring women yeah. on it, which some, some of the expeditions. And Lanzo Meadow, that site in Newfoundland, does show archaeological evidence that the, there were women at that settlement. But they were driven away. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Odin finally made it anyway, according to American Gods. So we, we still have Odin among us. I guess my final question for you is, whether you think there is an element of kind of contemporary American pop culture or contemporary American beliefs, do you feel like that there is that piece of Odin worship or, you know, kind of beliefs from Norse myth that kind of continues into the present at all? Not like literally, because obviously there's not a lot of Odin worshipers around or people who have read the sagas, but do you feel like there is a strand that would be recognizable to people who were like living in the medieval era in Scandinavia? If they came here now, they'd be like, oh yeah, I recognize that ideology. I I recognize those cultural values. Well, I think they were so concerned with survival that a lot of modern sort of consumer culture would not be very familiar I think the place that you look for these values is, again, in, in frontier societies and people who are living on the edge without large networks of resources with a lot of conflicts with neighbors that you find similar societies. I mean, reading about Plains Indian societies like the Lakota, Arapaho, etc., uh, you do find a society that does seem to be organized somewhat similarly to Viking society. I mean, mobile raiding societies do sort of come upon a lot of the same values and ideas. And I think today, you know, no, there's not really a lot of of similarity in the culture, at least not in the values that people explicitly express. You know, there is still a lot of conflict over resources, but it's just sort of subjugated under a much more docile face. You know, sometimes people ask me how a Viking would vote. (laughs) I don't know why people ask these questions. You'd be amazed at things people do ask. And, you know, I have no idea. You know, I, I, I... I don't know what party would it would appeal to, you know, Snorri Sturluson or Eric the Red, because I think again, it's they're they're so focused on the survival of themselves and their families that even though they had a civil society, Iceland has been or Iceland was a functioning republic from around the time it was settled, eight seventy three to the twelve sixties. So much of the rules that we give to the executive branch, especially the police, were things that just individual families handled. I mean, someone killed your brother, you go kill his brother. It's just it's a it is that kind of rugged individualistic attitude. And again, something you find more in frontier cultures than in the settled consumer society of today. Not something Mr. World would approve of, perhaps. That is very much that, that conflict that you're describing between sort of frontier culture and what we have now, especially in sort of settled urban culture, which is becoming kind of the dominant culture throughout the world, that doesn't mix. I mean, it's hard to imagine kind of old Norse urbanism, if that makes sense. Right. It's not a belief system for people who live in cities, basically. No, and that's part of why I think that it does transfer well to the uh, American Western frontier. I mean, these are 
These are individuals or families living in constant conflict with the other individuals and families around them. And though they do have a civil society, they do have a, a, an assembly that meets every year to discuss the laws and such. It's about agreeing on norms of how individuals and families can manage these conflicts. It's not about creating public works. You know, there isn't really a such a thing as, as sort of the public sector in the old Icelandic Commonwealth. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Do you have any uh, books coming up or anything that you want to tell us about that we can look for to get more information about Viking world and Icelandic sagas and all of that good stuff? Well, the Poetic Edda, which is the main source of the myths, the Norse gods and heroes, is available in my translation uh, that came out in 2015 from Hackett Publishing Company. And then in September... My translation of two of the most important Viking sagas, the Saga of the Volsungs and the Saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, is going to come out from the same company. And then I have a YouTube channel, it's just under my name, Jackson Crawford, where I talk about all kinds of topics in Norse language and myth. So that's something else people can check out if they're inclined. I, I probably get a dozen emails a day from people who just want stuff in runes. I mean, it's actually kind of overwhelming. <laughs> okay, so don't email Jackson about rune translations. Do it yourself. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the TV that we basically just can't shut up about. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm your host. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and we'll be back for the next three weeks after each new episode airs. So keep watching American Gods and keep listening, and see you next time. <laughs>